everybody. Welcome back to the You're Not Welcome Here podcast by Ecomatic. Today, we will be addressing inclusivity in travel with Ronnie Weiss. Ronnie is the executive director of Travel Unity, a nonprofit focusing on increasing diversity in travel through individual and community empowerment. Through Travel Unity, Ronnie pushes forward Travel Unity's holistic mission to make travel a space that is welcoming for people of all backgrounds and abilities. Season one has been all about defining sustainable tourism and its different iterations. Therefore, for this episode, we're going to be speaking with Ronnie about inclusive travel, what it looks like, challenges in DEI, and solutions to address non-inclusive travel practices. So welcome, Ronnie. Before we begin with our questions, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about you, where you're from, and your background? <laughs> a little bit. All right, I'll stick to a little <laughs> bit. Um, <laughs> born uh, in Long Island, grew up outside of Seattle, went to college when I was 10, got my associates with honors at 12, graduated from high school at 15, graduated from the University of Washington with uh, degrees in English and drama at 18, moved to Hollywood, uh, traveled the world, taught English, uh, went to every country in Europe, every continent except Antarctica, uh, did social media uh, and marketing consulting, started an event called the New York Travel Festival, where we talked about uh, things around sustainability, innovation, storytelling, and out of that, Travel Unity, which I'm sure we're going to talk more about, grew from. That was an incredible summary, Ronnie. And how have I known you for this long? And I had no idea of your background. Like You finished school early. Did you say an associate's at 12? Yeah, uh, with honors, actually, yeah. <laughs> How is it even possible? Like, well, when you go know. when you go at ten, a lot of associates take two oh years. God. Kelly, I thought you were in the academic space. I, I, I do not know how associates work. Well, Sorry, Doctor Kelly Seriallo, that associates <laughs> the way they work is so below I'm your. <laughs> no, I'm just blown. I listen. I know associates at like seventeen or eighteen, maybe, but not twelve. It's amazing. So oh, you so know. Cool. It's, it's, it's mock modesty, but what I'll tell people sometimes is it really took me six years to get my undergraduates because I was in community college for three years in the end, and then I was in university for three years from 15 to 18, so six years altogether. Mock, so a lot of people do it modesty. in short of it. As, as, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous <laughs> statement, but yeah. Oh, it's incredible. And actually, I did the other fact that you just said. So obviously, Ronnie, Jacqueline, and I have met before. We have the honor of working together in different spaces before. So it's an honor to have you on and to, to reconnect in this space. I also didn't know that Travel Union was born out of the New York Travel Festival. So it's super interesting. So on that note, can you tell us a little bit more about Travel Unity, you know, some of its programs? Like, why did you start this, you know, from that travel show? Like, what led you to this? So in 2015, we had a session at the New York Travel Festival called Traveling While Black. And it was all black women. Uh, Monica Drake, who is a black woman editor at the New York Times, moderated it. And it, it was clear that conversations like this were not really happening. And um, it's, it's been really interesting also as we track kind of how things have gone along. 
I think that representation in, in media and the travel space has gotten a lot better. Um, it was almost foregone in the mid-2010s that you would see a financial service sector ad and you'd have a mixed-race couple, you know, a banker in, in a wheelchair, whatever it was, and then the next ad would be a destination where everybody who was a visitor, a traveler, was white and everybody who was serving them was a person of color. And I think that's gotten a lot right. better. Um, but in the mid-2010s, people were not talking about this. So to me, we were doing this annual event, and that didn't seem like enough, that there had to be some mechanism to force the industry to, to do more. So that was one side. The other thing is I'd been working with young people since 2004. Um, one of our partners for the festival um, did these... Uh, global experiences for young people, and it cost them $10,000 a kid to go to Machu Picchu or Rome or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, these students who are, are from these low-income schools, etc., they have to have a gap of, of experience when it comes to their own cities, their own states, etc. So 10000 bucks could be dispersed to many more than one student. So that was the beginning and still really is the core of what travel unity is. How do we get people, especially young people, they see travel as something they can do as an activity and a career path, no matter who they are. And how do we get the industry now? The shift has been not only to talk about it, but actually to do stuff. Because come 2020, there became a lot of talking and not necessarily a lot of sense of what the direction was to go. So that's been the growth we've had, which is creating these paths, uh, roadmaps, support structures, for individuals and organizations in the travel space to actually do what we call applied DEI. So not just performative stuff, not change the world instantly stuff, but plug away, do the work and make some progress. And so if you don't mind elaborating a little bit more on that, because I think that gives a really good overview of the entity of what Travel Unity is, who a lot of their target audience is and why it was created. But I know just from working with you that there's so many layers to it. So like in terms of your programming, in terms of your partners, in terms of like some of the initiatives that you're working on right now, if you don't mind sharing that, that'd be great. So everything really is based on the standards that we helped curate in 2020. So we had over 100 people inside and outside the industry, DEI experts, not DEI experts, to come up with what would DEI standards in the travel space look like. And you've mentioned sustainability. Early in that process, um, I had reached out to Randy Durbin and Global Sustainability Tourism Council to make sure that we wouldn't be stepping on their toes. And, you know, we're not. And there's a big agreement here that DEI is a subset of sustainability. It's the people and, you know, to the extent it affects the profit part, too. We try to stay as much as possible out of the natural world environmental space because there are a lot of folks who are already doing that. We don't need to, to redo that. Um, so we looked at things like the sustainable development goals, like GSTC's criteria, and, and said, okay, how are we going to flesh out what isn't there? What can be more detailed? And we came up with these three pillars, which are basically the three different ways you can work with people, management and workforce, visitorship, and community impact. And what's been interesting is I've actually talked to people in other spaces too, like healthcare, and the model works in the same way in that the people who work at the space, 
the middle being visitors is really the customer. So for the healthcare space, that could be patients. Um, and then community is always there. So um, those standards, we originally set out that, okay, we're going to do standards and we're going to create an organizational certification so people can demonstrate that they aligned with them. The problem is that I was naive about, you know, what people's bandwidth is and what sort of support they needed. So I thought you give them 80 pages of stuff, they'll just walk their way through at some point and they'll be done. And people needed and wanted more support than that. Um, so we then created a leadership level certification where you made the plan to be used in the organization. So the idea would be you'd have this plan. And then once you proved you did the plan, then you'd have the certification. We created a baseline individual certification too. So we now have three certifications, a baseline individual, a leadership level one, where you create a plan for an organization, and then an organizational certification where you demonstrate that you've actually been doing this. Um, so everything that we do goes through the filter of those standards. Uh, we do consulting work, work with um, multiple destinations. We have our alliance, so you mentioned our network. So um, we have our membership component where we have um, a lot of a lot of different def destinations. That's where we've had the most uh, traction, but Kimpton's a part of that too. Um, TripAdvisor and Yelp and American Express have been a part of it over the past few years. Um, we do events, so we did a Northeast uh, Summit. Uh, and we are doing a Southeast Summit in uh, the end of March. Uh, we so the Alliance. Uh, we have have visitor facing organizations, nonprofits, a media network, and our college core um, and associations. So we do a lot of work with travel industry associations too to get them to sync up with how to bring DEI into these organizations that you know, have had missions that are decades old and don't necessarily align with this new kind of way of looking at the world because uh, some of their, their missions and models are, we're here to make sure our, you know, members make money. And like, that's kind of, it's, it's a paraphrase, but like that is, and when you look at it, there are a few people who are like, yes, that's the sole reason. No, they're there for networking. They're there for support. They're there to uh, help the industry forward, et cetera. So yeah, we work with a lot of different folks all again, um, we're a 501c3. We're a charitable nonprofit. All of this is not about those organizations because those organizations are simply people. And the people within those organizations are the ones who need to change things to make it welcoming to the broader underrepresented communities that need that access. Thank you so much for giving that background. Um, so I'm going to bring it back a little bit and look into your certifications. So when you are working with an organization um, and, and as the season is defining what sustainability looks like or inclusivity looks like, what to you would define what inclusion looks like within the travel space? And like, what do you look out for when you are going through that certification process? Um, and then also, why do you specifically focus on travel? Like, why did you hone in on this industry? So, um, a few, wow, that's a lot. Um, the, so on the sort of, on the, let's start with the inclusion part. So the problem with, with DEI is a lot of people, especially in the U S have a very narrow view of what it is. They put it as race and ethnicity. And a lot of times they really just mean black and the amount of times where people say we need diversity and they really mean we want to see more black visitors bothers me because like. If you want black visitors, that's cool, but it's different than saying diversity. Diverse and black are not synonyms. 
Um, so that's the first thing that when we're talking about diversity, yes, we are talking about race and ethnicity, and it would be foolish to pretend that in the United States, there is not a history and present where, uh, race and ethnicity come into uh, play when it comes to how the majority of people engage with each other and the opportunities there, et cetera. But, uh, the big line I always say to people is if you say that you care about black people, well, there are disabled black people. You care about Hispanic or Latino people. Well, there are LGBTQ, Hispanic and Latino people. People. So we can't just look at identity as being one thing. There are all these different aspects that have this interplay uh, and are really about seeing people as fully realized human beings, which is really what inclusion is intended to be. If we're tokenizing people and treating them as just one aspect of who they are, that's not really inclusion or equity. So, so that's the first thing. And quite honestly, one of the biggest things that people say they learn from our programming, which is, wow, I didn't realize how DEI really is all these things things. Another thing that over the past few years that I've started really seeing and realizing, I saw it first in a lot of ways, because I think that, that there's a focus on people being good, on being understanding, on being empathetic. And that's good. It's good to have good people who understand this. Um, but what's missing a lot of times is that it ends there. So the model that I give, which is not really the model that everybody else gives, diversity, the first two will sound like everybody else's. So diversity is different kinds of people. The problem with just having diversity is it doesn't mean that they're included. You, so you need to include those people. The problem with inclusion, though, is it could rely on charismatic, empathetic, friendly, good leaders who might leave. So if all you do is have a really good culture right now with no processes in place, no institutional memory, well, then it can all die when that leader leaves. So when we're doing these trainings, these workshops, when we're doing the certifications, when we're doing any of our work, we're focused on both those things simultaneously. How do we get people to understand what this DEI stuff is? Because obviously you need to, but simultaneously or almost simultaneously, like, like, like in the next half step, it almost all it almost instantly needs to start that they're also setting those processes in place to have that institutional memory. Um, you asked why the travel space? Because I was traveling a lot and I was doing that anyway. Um, I, I think, it, you know, the, the, the flip side, like that's, that's a dismissive answer. I'll give you a more honest one, which is I don't care about the travel stuff. That's not what any of this is about. This is about people being able to see that the world mm. should be for them, no matter who they are. Travel is a really easy and good mechanism to make the world be everybody's. Like, otherwise, what is it? I could go to any website I want to. Like, travel is so many different things that if we're talking about the world, it's very hard to talk about that without talking about travel. I'll say another thing that I noticed, too, which is the, universe, the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Travel comes right after all of the legal stuff. It's like, you know, you can't be a slave. You can't be whatever. Huh. Like, literally, the next thing after is travel. Mm. It's interesting. And why do you think that is? Do you think just in terms of, like, the the ability for travel to be non-inclusive? Like, why is that? Like, in terms of from a human right? I think it comes back to, to the thing I was saying, which is, if you can't go places, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what is your life then? Like, 
uh, if you don't have that opportunity to, to because yeah. the thing about travel too, if you get outside of the industry part of it is it's opportunity. Like how much of, of any history is about people migrating for economic opportunity. So if you're stopping people from doing that or they can't do that, how are they going to improve their lives or that of their families? Which is travel, you know, I mean, mm. for, for me, part of travel, too, is we talk about how do we get a kid in one city to think about going to a state school somewhere else? Because you have people who grow mm. up in this place, they're with their families, and are they, like, what is adulthood in the 2020s? Like, are you getting this chance to actually mm. become your own person? Yeah, it's really interesting. And Jacqueline and I, I was just talking to her about this. Like when I was in South Africa recently, one of the most mind blowing things to me, and it highlighted my degree of privilege, was talking to some of the farm workers there about their migration patterns. A lot of them have moved from Malawi and Zimbabwe to South Africa, like you had said, for economic opportunities. And what was interesting, though, aside from that, the local South Africans that were working in some of these regions in like the Western Cape, the wine regions there, a lot of them have never traveled outside of an hour radius because they don't have the means to. So it was really like thinking about the fact that I was able to afford to go on a plane to go to South Africa. And then the fact that people couldn't afford transportation, you know, within an hour radius was really eye opening. And this is that's one small example, but the degree of privilege associated with that. And that's why I admire what you're doing in Travel Unity is kind of highlighting the fact that there's such a degree of privilege and the importance of extending that opportunity beyond, you know, our borders, you know, kind of our bubble of privilege, if you will. So I want to ask, though, I'm curious, like, the what was the driving force behind you dedicating your life mission to this? Like, why this? You know, like that it sounds like you had an incredible academic career. Like what what was this? Like, was there something that pushed you? And you're like, this is, you know, I know that you said that obviously with the the New York travel show and, and those things, you know, the, what, what specifically drove you to this? Well, now you're going to have to make me do more past stuff. So <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a famous actor. That was literally my career plan was I was going to move to Hollywood and become famous. So when I was 19, I moved to Hollywood. I did not become famous. I was miserable. Um, so it wasn't clear what I was going to do next. So I sat there, you know, depressed in North Hollywood going, what am I going to do? What do I care about? Like, what's the next thing? And I'm like, what do I care about? I care about making things better. I want the world to be better. So I was like, okay, well, what about a trying to make a new uh, international security organization. So what would that take? So I looked into public policy programs. I looked into law school. I applied to law school. I got into a couple law schools. Um, when I got to visit one, uh, the students there said, if you have anything else to do with your life, do it. And I was like, okay, well, one of two things, either they've got good advice and I should listen, or um, these are miserable people and I've been depressed and lonely and I don't want to be around miserable people. So I went and I worked at a summer camp um, in the Poconos and I had no plan what I was going to do next. It was like, okay, here's the job. And, you know, it was a bunch of J1s who worked there because uh, that's how this stuff works. Mm -hmm. So I met people from England and Scotland who were like, hey, come and visit us. And I'm like, I can go do that. So I started backpacking, um, and then that got me into teaching English, and then I started traveling around, and I'm like, hey, I could be a famous TV show host. Let's pick up on that fame thing. Um, it, then that wasn't working, so I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? 
So I went to um, the Los Angeles Times Travel and Adventure Show in 2011, and I came across Africa Travel Association. And I said, okay, there was there was one more thing I was going to do, which was Africa. So I said, I haven't done, I've been, you know, I taught in Santiago. I took buses from Chile to Colombia. I'd been to every country in Europe. So Africa was the place I was going to do, and then I'd figure out what was next. So I asked them, what, what should I or, or can you sponsor me on an overland trip? And this is a trade association. I realize, you know, now how absurd it was that they would ever do anything like this. They never would have. But what they ended up doing was they brought me out to, to, to Senegal, um, where I did uh, YouTube wow. videos and did social media stuff because they were interested in the social media stuff I did. So I rebranded as a social media consultant. I'm like, okay, I know this. I run Twitter chats, which mattered, you know, in the 2010s. So um, I started doing that. I started the New York Travel Festival because I'm like, look, there are these discussions that are not happening. Um, so my answer to you, Kelly, is none of this was a plan. Like I didn't go, it, it was, a. I think, that, and this is, you know, when we work with young people, this is one of the things I try to impress upon them whenever we have guest speakers. It's like somebody comes and they're the GM of whatever. And it's like, did you, is this where you wanted to go? And it's one of the most unfortunate things about the travel industry too. Very few people. And I can't think of one, honestly, but I'm not going to say there are none, but very few people intend to be in this industry. Like, they fall into it because of some sort of awareness of something they did, uh, some whatever of, like, this is the kind of people I want to be around. Um, but I've yet to meet anybody who has said, like, on career day in elementary school that somebody came and said, I work in the travel industry. So I think we all fall into this. Yeah, so I have a question then, and actually, Jacqueline was just typing this, that she, she's, both of us are curious. If this wasn't planned, then what keeps you going in this space? So if you didn't, yeah, like what, because it's, it's a commitment, and it's the important work that you're doing is no lighthearted thing. So, yeah, what keeps you invested in it? I mean, I don't know how satisfying the answer is going to be. I think part of it is that I'm a contrarian. I think part of it is that, that like, I'll, I'll fight for things that I think need to be fought for. And if that's, you know, the, the cell phone company charging me an extra $5 and I need to be on six hours of calls and send, you know, written letters to the VP, I'll do that. If it's fighting against societal inequity, I'll do that. Like, uh, I mean, I, I, like, I don't like when things are unfair. I never have. I never will. And, uh, and, and that to me is, I, I found myself in a place that fits how I look at things. And we were talking before the call. I think what's strange to people in some ways is I, I don't come at this with, with an emotional sort of approach for the most part. You know, I, I think I connect with people to whatever degree, but I, I, the bigger part of why I do this work is because it makes sense. Like I see a way to do this in a way that's bettering and helps people and gets a lot of the kind of noise as far as I see it out of the equation, because we've come to a point where like literally as we're recording this DEI is a controversial term. And it's crazy to me because on its face, most people will agree with the fact that travel should be for everyone. I mean, literally, we just established that it's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So once you start peeling away the, 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 the noise, it's like it makes sense. So I guess in some ways it's my job, or I see it as, and I see it as a good challenge, to help people get that noise away. Mm. 
So this builds on it. So from your experience then, so why do you think is it absolutely necessary for companies to include DEI in the workplace, not just travel, but more broadly? And like what, from your experience, like are the benefits that come from this? You know, I think the, there's kind of the, the, some of the obvious answers, but I'm curious through your work, what you've seen, some of the benefits that are coming and, and why it's necessary. So I think that the big thing is that people <clears throat> have a big misunderstanding and they, they have a synonym between anti-discrimination and DEI. Those are not the same thing. There are too many people, and I, you know, I was at a slew of events where, you know, I was talking to people I'd never met before, and they're like, oh, that's really interesting, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and they go, I'll take anybody's money. That's not DEI. <laughs> like, the, the idea that you will not tell somebody to go away because of some aspect of who they are mm -hmm. is not going out of your way to be welcoming to them. Um, I'm a big fan of Mas Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, the base is we're all animals. We need to eat. We need to sleep, whatever. The next level is we need to feel safe. And then above that is we need to feel like we belong somewhere. So when it comes to both your workforce and your visitors um, or customers outside of the travel space, if they do not feel like they belong, they will never have an optimal experience, which means that you don't have a guarantee of them coming back. You have a very little chance of them recommending it to others, both in the workforce side and on the, the visitor customer side. So that's the business case. I literally, you know, I, I give talks about this and I tell people I will never give a talk called the business case for DEI because it's literally one slide. It's 20 seconds. And, it, and the, I do the slide because it's our three <laughs> pillars on the management and workforce side. It's about, um, well, you have to pay to recruit new people. Um, you have to train those people. So if you don't retain people, you're going to keep going through that cycle. So you need to make sure that people feel like they belong. And this is one of the things I was going to say before that one of my more recent learnings is how DEI is not just about the identity stuff and the things we all think about, but literally in the workspace, it's if Kelly keeps complaining about something, do I hear what she's saying? And do I do something, make sure she feels heard and try to make the workplace better for her? Or am I just ignoring her or making it seem like I'm listening or whatever? Because that's how people start getting ground down and start re regretting and making feel themselves feel bad that they're going into this workplace and work somewhere else. I like the amount of times that people think that they have this amazing workplace when the people there are are really just kind of on edge for a variety of reasons, or you see people keep leaving this place. It's like, huh, yeah, no, everybody's leaving because they're just getting more money. Like, no, that's not what it is. So management workforce is retention and all of that, because if you don't retain people, there's a lot of costs. Visitorship, it's return visitors and word of mouth. And community, um, especially for a destination, you are not going to get the support you need in a lot of ways if they don't understand um, what you're doing and if they don't care about that. And you're not going to have the workforce stuff, which feeds back into the first part, too. That's a great segue into the next question, because I was really curious while you're talking with these companies and you're consulting with them and you're digging a little bit deeper into why they might have these problems with turnover and retention for a company that is looking to begin this process of adapting the company mindset or the company culture to be more diverse, equitable and inclusive. What are some of the first steps that they can take? Like, what does your work look like there? And how do you also ensure that the company is not just taking this as a performative gesture? So 
I, I'll go through our phases um, of, of our consulting work. So phase one is that we do um, a survey or interviews, depending on the size of the organization, to go, do these people care about DEI within the organization, the day-to-day people? Do they think the organization cares about it? How much do they feel like they're heard in the workplace, et cetera? So in terms of advice, whether you work with us or somebody else, I think having a third party come in and assess that is valuable because uh, you will get much more honest answers when you have a third party come and do that. So uh, you need to be ready for the answers. We worked with one organization where one of the questions was, um, or rating on a scale of one to five, that I feel like I can uh, express contrary points of view in the workplace. Well, it was almost flat, like as many twos as there were fives. And and the, the leader of this organization was was practically in tears because they thought they had an open door policy and they were whatever, but like people didn't feel like they could actually express stuff. So that disconnect needs to be established very early on. So phase one, the the staff side, then we do an audit of HR practices um, as they fit our standards. So um, a lot about work-life balance things, flex time, mental and physical health being treated as, as equally important, et cetera. Um, and then marketing overall, looking at their website, their social media, et cetera, to go, how inclusive are you right now? Um, then phase two, we do trainings. So our standard trainings are DEI 100, which is a lot of terminology um, across these different aspects of identity, identity and bias, um, where we dig into who are you and who are your coworkers in the space to better understand uh, that and then in the third session, we, we deal with emotional intelligence or stakeholders. It depends how much we're, we're doing internal or external, depending on who, who it is. Um, so that's second. Third phase is stakeholders. So starting to work with um, who you work with more generally uh, for a destination. You know, that's, that's partners and hotels and attractions, etc. And fourth, and it's only then, do we talk about visitors, because once you start talking about visitors, you're talking about literally any kind of person who could come here. So hopefully at that point, once you've had your stakeholders and your internal discussions, you have a better sense of who can we really be trying harder to attract? What is the story we're trying to tell rather than doing the worst marketing thing ever, which is we want everyone to come. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So just a question about like the certifications. Um, So my master's research was all about linking eco certifications to greenwashing and how they can kind of correlate with one another. So I'm sure you've thought about this. So uh, you used the term woke washing before we started recording. So I'm just curious if you've seen that like within a certain workplace and how how do you go about um, ensuring that that doesn't happen within a workplace? The people I tend to work with I, it's, I'm too close at this point to see it as woke washing. I think from the outside, somebody might call it that, but I, I, I've become so much more aware. I don't think understanding is the right word. I think aware is the right word. I've become so much more aware of how people are in a role and their job is to do that role. So if DEI has not historically been a part of that role, if I'm the marketing or salesperson, for me to now tell you this is part of it, it really throws your world off. So my job, and you know, by extension Travel Unity's job, is how do we make it that, and this is what we do all the time, meet people where they are. How do we make it that they can do this work in a sincere, useful way 
without because otherwise it won't stick also i mean if we try to have them do something that doesn't feel like it fits their job well maybe they'll listen to us for a second but then it's going to go away it's not going to become habitual so we need to figure out how to make this be part of of what they're doing so i don't i think people want to be welcoming and people want to do this work but i've been doing this too long to think that all these people who've worked with us for years who, you know, didn't meet our original organizational standard where it was all or nothing because we now changed it to multi-level because over over two years, people were doing it, but, like, they didn't do all of it. So how do we recognize progress in some way? We'll say there's still places to go. So I will say also, structurally, we, we, we just changed our certification, and I've, I think I've said this a couple times. It used to be you had to prove that you aligned with all of our standards before you could get it certified, and that clearly wasn't working. But what we didn't want to do is have somebody on level one for the rest of eternity, because this is we, we have these standards because we believe they need to be hit. So the compromise we made was that you cannot get level one certification until you commit that you will get to level two within 18 months. Why 18 months? Because of budget cycles. Because this is part of the learning too. That people go, yeah, we'd love to do this, but like we would need to hire this consultant or we would need to put this into blah, 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 blah. So, okay, 18 months allows you that you've got time to now put it into yet next year's budget cycle because uh, level one is that you need to prove that you have an external commitment an internal commitment, and you need to do a general take of where you're at right now. Level two is all the employee handbook stuff. So you can't get level one until you go, okay, how are we within 18 months going to make sure that our employee handbook is up to date enough uh, that it aligns with those standards? So on our end, when it comes to certification, we are not going to let people maintain certification unless they continue down the path. On their end, um, I tell people, I've told multiple people since we changed certification, um, don't get certified yet. <laughs> like, because what's going to happen is people are going to come to you and be like, what does this mean? Why do you have this? How do you, how did you earn this? Whatever. And I'm not convinced that everybody has those answers. Um, and, and, um, our, our first organization that will be certified within the next few weeks, when I ask them the question, are you ready for those, uh, like to answer those questions? The answer was hell yeah. Like they wanted to get those questions and they wanted to answer those questions. And that's where I want people to be rather than kind of stumbling over themselves, like be confident that you've earned this. Mm, and excited about it and, and willing to, to have accountability by saying that you've done this. I think like accountability also comes with Jacqueline. And I have talked about this before, especially on previous episodes of how important when you come out publicly to say that it automatically puts you in a position to own it and to follow, to walk the talk. So, and, and hopefully encourage knock on wood to encourage them to continue. So I'm curious from you, Ronnie. So we mentioned before, you know, you're located in the U S and so our country is becoming more and more politically divided. And so I'm curious, how do you address the conversations with people who may have opposing views or misunderstanding when it comes to DEI? And then my second part in that is that you and I have talked in the past about, you know, the, your work and, you know, is it, is it going to be international? So I'm curious for the second part is how, if at all, does DEI show up or look like in different international destinations? Because it's not the same as the U.S. So 
Um, so yeah, I guess the first part, you know, how do you address opposing views? You two love loading part, these questions, like, but just like, just laden. It's like a poutine of questions. Well, you um, you are just so much. Um, it, it is a poutine of questions, PM, but you have so much information. All right. So the first, the first answer to... is for for better or worse, and I think it's worse. The people who generally disagree with this just won't talk to me. <laughs> you know, they're not looking to get their worldviews changed in any sort of way. Um, I, I think that I'll have more luck with somebody, you know, who thinks of themselves as an independent, right? Uh, like that they, they're, they're open-minded about stuff. Because when it comes down to it, I consistently do not think of this work as political, you know, for better or worse, for reality or not. And I and I say we're not an activist organization. Like, we believe in what we call the foundational commitment. If you believe that travel should be for everyone, what we are trying to do is work with you on that. Like, I, I just, anybody who's bringing politics into that has an agenda that is its own. And, like, so I've had these conversations with people who are Republicans, who consider themselves right-wing, whatever, and... I, it's, it, it comes down to that, right? If they see this, then it makes sense. And I think I, I hope that I explain it in a way that's, that's logical to them. Um, on the international side, ugh, um, the problem is there is a denial in a lot of places about what is and isn't happening in their parts of the world where people uh, have allowed themselves the luxury of going, oh, well, racial problems are just America's, um, with no recognition of how colonialism has impacted the entire globe. Um, I will also say that because of our, our broad definition of diversity, literally any urban-rural divide is part of what we're talking about. And, you know, the most developing of nations, the most income segregated of nations, you will find massive disparities between their capitals and major cities and their outlying uh, rural areas. So even if you want to claim, and I don't buy it, but that you have no uh, kind of issues or uh, distinction and you're homogeneous when it comes to race and ethnicity, again, that's not all of what DEI is. Everywhere has disabilities, and I've talked to people who've been in this space in other parts of the globe, and it's a way that the U.S. actually leads. There are the I, people who've, who've gone to Canada and talked to Canadians will be like, they wish Canada had an ADA. Um, so this idea that um, the U.S. is way ahead and way behind, or only, this stuff is only applicable here, is is irrelevant to me because again there are people who are not being included in various ways and to to varying degrees depending on what the space and geographic location is that's really interesting and actually kind of a follow-up question because you did say the u.s is either very far ahead or far behind in your opinion what do you think because i go back and forth with it myself all the time in my work in sustainability i sometimes think that we're really lucky to be so open about having these conversations but then sometimes it's depending on who you talk to um so just curious about your perspective on that when I was in GSTC in Spain in December, I, I, I agree with the general consensus that the U.S. is behind on the environmental side and ahead on the people and cultural side when it comes to these conversations. I think it's a it's an easy thing to say if we're you know just comparing ourselves in, and Europe. Um, I, I think you know when it comes down to it, to me, it's almost it, 
it's very unfortunate and it's understandable based on economic uh, needs and, and, you know, inequality and whatever. But when it comes to disability, a outside of, of, you know, the U S and Europe, it is just a big jump down in terms of how people with disabilities, not just can go out into the world, but are even seen as being a viable part of society. So, um, because that is firmly a part of our work, it's, you know, it, it's, it's easy to say, you know, because of benefits and privilege and all of that, I don't want to discount that. But when it comes to disability, the U.S. is doing a lot better than a lot of places globally. Yeah, actually, really interesting that I found out. Um, I'm currently in Dubai right now for a few more days, wrapping up a year here. Um, and they actually just became the first autism certified destination outside of the U.S. Um, so definitely starting to see it pop up around the world. But I completely agree that we definitely are <laughs> way behind on environmental, but uh, far ahead on social aspects of sustainability. Um, so moving on and kind of breaking down um, a lot of your work involves the youth. And I know that that holds a really special place in your heart. So in your opinion, why do you believe that it's important to include young people in these conversations? Um, and how do you believe that they will benefit from working within the travel industry? So I, as I said before, I think people stumble into this industry. And I think it, what's one thing that I realized a, a few years back is that if you care about music, it's somewhat easy-ish to find people to do music with. If you care about film and acting now, well, everybody can do that. Um, but if you come from a family or a culture where the world is this scary place where you shouldn't be a part of it and you should stay at home and, and all of that, it becomes a lot harder for you to find your people and find something where, where you can feel like you belong. Um, so, you know, when I was running the festival, people who had traveled their whole lives had never thought about the travel industry. So somebody who's barely traveled at all, how are they ever going to think about that this is a space for them? So there are plenty of people of all backgrounds, abilities, socioeconomic status who are curious about the world, like meeting people, want to get out there and do things and don't, for various reasons, have those opportunities. So it's important to me to at least let them know it's an option. I don't think everybody will travel all the time. I, I, that's not my goal. My goal is that the people who would find interest and value in it see that it is something they can do no matter who they are. So thinking about from your experience, I know that you interact with a lot of destinations. You've worked with a lot of different partners. So can you highlight some positive case studies or examples that you've seen with travel companies or destinations who have kind of uh, transformed once they began to embrace DEI? So like some things like positive examples that we can look at and kind of if somebody wanted to, you know, say, I, this is a mentor so, that I saw name drop. Um, I was just uh, talking to Fred Dixon, the head of New York City tourism. Um, and I was saying how to everybody we talk to, I highlight what they've done on the front of their website about the Latino experience in NYC, the black experience in NYC. And um, I, I, I think the way they did it, and, and Fred used the term secret sauce, and I agree is that the way that was framed was was dead on because to call it the experience 
allows you to do two things simultaneously, allows it to be the people who live in that place, that it's the culture, it's that community, but it also allows me, if I am of this identity, to also see it as a, a link to me having that experience. So, you know, just because I'm black doesn't mean that I want to go and just see black cultural stuff. Um, like, I could just want to go golfing or go to the beach. So we can't pretend like that is the only way for somebody to have this experience. Yes, it's potentially beneficial. Yes, there is a subset of these identity groups that want that, and that's what they're specifically seeking out. But to call it that allows it to be both those things at the same time, which to me is a massive win. So taking that and moving forward, what do you believe then the future of unity and inclusion and in travel will look like to you? I, 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 I said before, I'm heartened by that the... Um, the representation side, I'm not going to say it's 100% solved in all aspects, but I think representation in media has gotten a lot better to the point that people like point to it and are leaning on it and being like, oh, yeah, look at our materials and whatever. But now they got to move on to the next steps um, where the on the destination side. And, and again, that's that's where I do more work than other stuff. We, we because. I want that to be the people who are making that impact with everybody within those destinations. But um, there's this whole discussion around, is it destination marketing? Is it destination management? Is it destination stewardship? Um, I, and there, there's a very reasonable debate around all of that. But I think what it comes down to is there needs to be engagement with community in a variety of ways. Um, so, so two things, I guess I'll point out of stuff that I think needs to happen. One is, um, there just needs to be more specific outreach to those groups that are not part of the current promotional material to be able to have these marginalized communities tell their story, um, still needs to keep getting pushed further. The other thing is in our standards, there's a term we have advocating for visitors, which is the idea that. If the travel industry is are not the ones advocating for visitor experience, then who is? And part of that starts extending, quite honestly, into what it means to be a community and a society overall. Because if I am a person of color and I'm going to come to a place and have a negative experience with law enforcement, or if I don't speak English as a native language and I go to a local hospital and I'm not going to get appropriate care because you can't get me to be understood, then those are all problems. But guess what? If I do that well for the visitors, it's also going to impact the locals who overlap with those identities too. But um, so, yeah, so I think those are some of the bigger things. If I want to take a bigger step forward, um, when it comes to this idea of marginalization, um, we've talked about the U.S. a good deal. The criminal justice system is a is a big thing that uh, the industry is not having a great deal of discussion about of how are we getting justice involved individuals to be a part of the travel industry there's certain sectors that are doing it a bit but um to keep thinking about who are the most marginalized groups in our society and how do we get them to be involved for our last um uh a travel show that that i went to a uh, new york travel and adventure show um we worked with an organization that, that works with women in domestic violence shelters to let them know about travel as something that they could do as an activity and a career path. So once we've gotten, you know, the, these kind of 
bigger things around representation, I think just progressing on this idea of how are we making sure that all of society is a part of this is it's never going to be done. I agree. It's, it's a constant stage of work. It's steps. You know, I don't think you ever come at a point where you're like, I've checked everything off and it shouldn't be a checklist. I think that's one thing I've learned in this space is that it isn't a checklist and it's something that constantly evolves with different staff. And like you had said, leadership. So we always end the podcast, Ronnie, with the question to our guests. That's a play on the title of the podcast. You're not welcome here. So we're curious what is not welcome to in your what is opinion, not welcome? In the world of tourism? Um, I think it comes back to this thing I was saying mm-hmm. about policy and process. That when you treat people differently, um, that's not welcome. Uh, and and I and it, I think it's a, a solution that solves it, or it's it's a problem that solves itself very quickly a lot of times. So it's this question of okay, you've got a gay couple who comes up to a front desk. And they're looking, and it sounds like a joke. It's not. Uh, they they come up to a front desk, and somebody goes, um, "Do you?" It still sounds like a joke. I got to change the way I'm, I'm phrasing this. The the person at the front desk asks them, um, "A you know, oh okay, you know, do you need two beds?" And then uh, a a opposite sex couple comes, and they assume it's one bed. All you have to do is ask everybody how many beds they need. And that's the answer so much of the time. Just don't make assumptions, right? People love this thing of that they understand people and they can guess this stuff. And I, so just don't. Just ask and and be ready for whatever answer you get. And that's how to be welcoming a lot of the time. Just have consistent processes, find out preferences, and act upon them. I mean, that's just a core tenet of being a host. I agree. It's funny. My, when I first worked, I used to work in luxury hotels in New York City, and the first GM that I had had said, never make assumptions. That's your first mistake. And so, like, it's yeah, you can't assume. So I completely agree. On the tail end of that, and to end kind of on a pot, well, Jacqueline has one more question, but on the theme of kind of what's welcome and what's not welcome, is there anything else that you would say looking forward in the future for travel that is welcome that we haven't already mentioned today. Cause I know we touched on a lot of the things that you would encourage, you know, thinking of inclusion and just overall travel unity. So I think Jacqueline brought up, you know, I think welcome. disability is something that's being thought of more. Um, and it's, it's funny. I never thought of it this way before, but I think that with disability, there's kind of a, an alignment with sustainability where you can literally just go through a checklist in a lot of ways that you can't with a lot of this work. So, um, yeah, I I think there is more awareness to disability because I think uh, people with disabilities are, are more included in society. We're hearing their voices. We're seeing them more in media, et cetera. So I think there's more thought and process that's, that's going in there. And I, I do think that that's progressing. It's, it's not done it's not not starting. It's in the middle of, I think, accessibility being a bigger thing in this industry. Yeah, that's well said. And it was actually really interesting to talk to the person that brought that initiative to light out here in Dubai, um, because at first or even five years ago, um, it was seen almost as a dirty word, autism. Like people didn't want to talk about it. People weren't so open about it. But then 
by actually educating and understanding um, what you need to do to make people feel a bit more included and welcome, it changed a lot of perspectives within the government alone and really drove Dubai to get the certification, being one of the first international destinations outside of the U.S. So definitely would welcome that and would love to see that in more countries around the world. Um, so this is such a lovely discussion. If someone wanted to connect with you, how would they go about finding you? Uh, I'm easy to find. They can email me, uh, <laughs> Ronnie, R-O-N-I, at TravelUni.org. Um, it's the best way to, to pin me down. Perfect. Well, thank you, Ronnie. For more information and resources about today's episode, please visit You're Not Welcome Here Podcast.com. And despite the name of the podcast, remember that you are always welcome here. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.